Hey, it's the Max Fun Block Party. This is Jesse, by the way. Until October 22nd, Max Fun is hosting a big blast, and we're doing it online. What does it mean? Well, we're having a big volunteer event. Uh, we're set up a streaming radio station. Uh, we're doing all kinds of cool, fun stuff on, on various social media platforms, uh, you know, Twitch and Instagram and so on and so forth. Uh, we also are making episodes that anyone can listen to. So if there's a Max Fun show that you've always been curious about but worried you would miss something, uh, now's the time to give it a try. And if there's a Max Fun show that you've always wanted to recommend to somebody but you were too nervous to try because you thought they'd get lost in the weeds of the in-jokes and so on and so forth... Now's the perfect time to do that, too. So enjoy the block party at MaximumFun.org slash block party. That's MaximumFun.org slash block party. And uh, tell your friends. Let's get into the show. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. From MaximumFun.org and NPR, it's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. This week, it's the Bullseye Halloween Spectacular. We've got Jamie Lee Curtis on the movie Halloween, television vampire hunter Harvey Guillen, and Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. It's all coming up on Bullseye. First up on this week's Halloween special, the star of Halloween herself, Jamie Lee Curtis. Jamie is, well, I mean, she's Jamie Lee Curtis. She's had unforgettable roles in a bunch of the Halloween movies, in True Lies, in A Fish Called Wanda, in Knives Out. She's also a children's book author, and as you're about to hear, a very, very cool lady in general. Lately, Curtis has been reprising her first ever acting role, that of Laurie Strode, from the Halloween movies. She played Laurie in the 2018 movie Halloween. She's returning in this year's Halloween Kills. Halloween Kills is, of course, a continuation of the saga of serial killer Michael Myers. It begins right where the 2018 film left off, with Michael on the lam and Laurie recovering in the hospital. In this clip, Laurie is talking with the local sheriff, Frank, about taking down Michael once and for all. There's nothing inside that man but pure evil. It's not just Michael. It's what he's done to this town, these people. Decent people. You're a good man, Frank. You were doing your job. But now it needs to die. Because every time somebody's afraid, the boogeyman wins. And I'm the one that needs to kill it. Jamie Lee Curtis, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. I'm, I honestly lost myself there for a second. Well, I saw you mouthing the line. I, I used to lip sync to, uh, you know, <laughs> Twisted um, on the uh, Joni Mitchell Blue album. So I can lip sync. It has to die. And I'm the one that has to kill it. I do really enjoy when somebody's in the studio, like seeing there are some people who like avert their eyes out of terror, hearing their own voices. There's some people who just like take out their phone and send text messages real quick. And then like 
Bonnie Pointer from the Pointer Sisters just straight up sang along with herself. Yeah. Well, if I could <laughs> sing, I would have sung along. And I didn't want to obviously like interrupt the moment and then sort of come in as a little chorus at the same time. I opted to just listen. But it's a hard time in Haddonfield. And it's a hard time around the world. And it literally makes me get teary. It's just, it's a hard time. And this movie is is about Haddonfield. It's really this movie, this new one, Halloween Kills, is about Haddonfield and what happened to Haddonfield as a town, the trauma that was inflicted on them uh, back in 1978. Yeah, I was about to say, like, the... Halloween film that you made a few years ago, the first of these three, the twenty eighteen new, movie. yeah, was a film substantially about dealing with the ramifications of trauma, and before it had a capital T, yeah, and here we are in a world where everyone, I mean, literally, pretty close to every single person in the world, maybe not some people in New Zealand, but pretty close to every single person in the world has endured a a genuine trauma over the past 18 months, two years. Yes. And then there's the personal trauma and then there's the communal trauma that we've also seen. So people are angry. The system feels broken. There are too many conflicting opinions. And we saw what happened in New Orleans with Katrina, how quickly how quickly people turned into very, you know, sort of self-protection, not all of us in it together, I need water for my kids and I'm going to get it, or whatever the circumstance was. You know, they talk about terrorism and they talk about shutting grids down and what it will do to a city. Just shut down the electrical grid in a big city like Los Angeles and then see what happens because people are angry and I think, uh, I know that David and Danny. David Gordon Green and Danny McBride. Look at you. Well done. Obviously are listening to people. They had this idea a long time ago. Not just a movie about Lori, but then a movie about the town and the other people that came in contact with Michael Myers. And, and then that now there will be a third movie. So horror movies, even relative to other genre movies, are their own world of production and filmmaking and so on and so forth. Like, they really are an island in Hollywood. Now, obviously, these movies have been directed by David Gordon Green, who's, you know, made Your Highness and George Washington. So... Like, Pineapple Express. Yeah, he's made he's made both you know beautiful slices of life life about children wandering through train yards and comedies about a minotaur's personal parts and stronger. Yeah, <laughs> the movie of an aftermath of yeah. a true life horror. So all kinds of things, but but the horror business is its own business. What do you like about? working in horror movies, something that you have done on and off through your entire career? I like, I love working. I love, I feel like I'm already a part of this crew here in your studio. And I mean that, I can't see them, but I think they would say the same thing to you. I feel like it's 
It's my nature to want to belong somewhere. It's a beautiful part of my job is that I get to not only belong, but I get to basically spearhead a group of people. And I'm a cheerleader by nature. I am a people person by nature. I I make everybody wear name tags so I can know everybody's name, not just them knowing mine. And for me, it is the process of any movie, regardless of the genre, that I love. I love it. I love to go to work. It is it is thrilling to me to show up on day one, just the same as it was when I was 18 years old, um, uh, 19 years old making Halloween, the original movie. The genre part, I'm not a genre girl. I don't love the genre. I am not drawn to the genre. I'm not an expert in the genre. I don't understand the genre. I don't. I scare easily. And Something happened at my house the other day, and um, the woman that works with me scared me. And my reaction was so real that she almost started to cry. She felt so bad that she startled me so deeply. And I, if I had my phone in here, which I don't, I would pull up a picture of me as an infant and Every single picture of me as a young child, every single picture of me as an infant, I look terrified. (laughs) I look startled, terrified, in fear, concern, worry. And I, now that I'm old and I've been making these movies for a long time, I scare easily, as was evidence at my home two days ago where I was shaking so hard and was so terrified by being startled by her. I thought she had left. And she came around. I, my refrigerator door was open, and I was in the refrigerator, and she came around the side of the door, and I screamed and then backed up against a thing, and my hands were shaking, and she was shaking, and she was like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm sorry, because she could see. And I think that that is a natural reaction for me. So do I like the genre? No. Do, would I pay a, a penny to go see something scary? No. But yet, I think the reason I'm so successful in this genre is because it is a natural um, response to fear. So you have been a working actor since you were like 18 or 19. Mm-hmm. You didn't go to acting school. You Never. Did, you took a, an acting class in your like uh, semester of college that you I, went to. I, I took a break from college. They allowed me to do an independent study. To, that, to do that satisfactorily, I took acting classes and dance classes. Uh, I took a singing class, a man named David Craig, used to teach uh, actors to learn how to sing. We had to sing the song Where or When. And he taught it from an internal storytelling so that you're you're not singing it, you're telling it from a dramatic standpoint. I don't know the song. Can you sing it for me? I wouldn't. I'm not. <laughs> not for a second am I going to – are you going to goad me into singing – where or when. But I remember the lyrics. It seems we've stood and talked this way before. 
We looked at the at each other in the same way then, but I can't remember where or when. The clothes you're wearing are the clothes you wore. The smile you are smiling, you were smiling then, but I can't remember where or when. But then in the class, people would get up. It was a, a theater, little theater, and people would get up and sing it on the stage. And I can't sing. And I was so petrified that I left the class. I watched people do it. I watched him work with people, and I just couldn't do it. But I, yes, I took cl classes because that was my what I said I would do for college. And then I wrote a paper, which I still have, by the way. I'm willing to sing uh, my audition song from high school from Mother Courage and Her Children, if you're willing to sing that song. I'm not going to sing that song okay. for you. I love that you are going to sing <laughs> your audition, which I, you maybe have a beautiful voice. I do not have, by the way, the best singing you're going to hear from me is in the 1978 movie Halloween, when Lori is walking away from the Myers house, little Tommy Wallace has run away or done something, and she's walking by herself down the street. And the lyrics that John had written that she sings were, um, okay, I totally have blanked. But I had to make up a song because I said to John, well, what do you want me to do? He said, just make up something. And I sing in that movie. Oh, I know. It goes like this. I wish I had you all alone, just the two of us. I would hold you close to me, so close to me, just the two of us, so close to me. Wish I had you all alone, just the two of us. And what was amazing about it was for me, there's Laurie Strode's romanticism, her longing to have a boyfriend, all the girls teasing her saying, you've scared another one away, Laurie, because she was a brainiac. She was smart. And it was so sweet that she had an inner love life. So when she starts being stalked, if you will, it's scary, but at first it's also it's like a little bit of a tension. It's an interesting dynamic. And of course, that's all born from John and Deborah. But it just, it showed me her vulnerability. And then, um, and then an Easter egg for those who like Easter eggs. Uh, David took that song. And John and David recorded a version of that song, which is playing in the truck with the little boy and his father, the little ballet dancing boy and his father in the 2018 movie. Just the two of us I would hold you close to me So close to me I would hold Growing up with parents who were beautiful movie stars, and, you know, particularly your mom was like... Crazy town. Yeah. I mean, absurdly beautiful and like... Absurdly beautiful. What a great way to describe her. And also, you know, famous for being beautiful. How do you think that affected your idea of 
like what beauty is and how it matters in the world? I was not beautiful. I was cute. I've had people tell me I'm cute my whole life. You're cute. And that had, I think, much more to do with my personality. The person you're hearing, the person you met today, the person your crew met today is who I am and have been that person since I was a little girl. Beauty is not something that uh, I was. Uh, my hair was weird. My teeth were gray. My mother took tetracycline when she was pregnant with me, and my teeth were really dingy gray in color. And I was cute, but I wasn't beautiful. And so I never felt beautiful at all. I feel beautiful now. Like I finally feel at 60-something. I'm starting to go, oh, yeah, I can pull this all together. But I've had to claim it over a lot of years. Um, I love dressing a character up. I love creating a visual look for a character. But for me, the more I now own who I am, what I look like, how I look, the best I look, how to make that work for me well, that's an ownership that I think has has given me an actual feeling of beautifulness, which is not something I, I dealt with. And so it was very difficult to be the daughter of two beautiful people. Tony Curtis was also very beautiful. And uh, my mother was, as you said, ridiculously beautiful or something. I mean, it's just... So I certainly never felt that way. But I also... There was no need for me to be beautiful. I wasn't a model. I didn't, you know what I mean? It, it didn't matter. I mean, when you were a kid, but you were on screen as a beautiful person from when you were 19 or 20 years old. But I wouldn't say I was. I, see, to me, the great thing is that I was actually given a part that was a character. For me, Lori was, I got to look like Lori. I didn't have to look like Jamie. It wasn't like, what size jeans do you wear? It was like, I went to JCPenney with the costume person. We spent $400 as if Lori's mother was taking her to back to school shopping. And we got outfits that matched. And you could wear the skirt with the blouse and then the blouse with the pant and penny loafers. I had had a perm when I met John. and. All I did is put hot rollers in it, but it was the whole character study was a character for me. And so that gave me great confidence because I wasn't being Jamie. I was able to be Lori. And so I wouldn't say that I ever felt beautiful um, in my early work at all. It's funny that you describe picking out the clothes for the character because I th this morning I read this Rolling Stone profile of you from the early 80s. And it was, first of all, it was so patronizing. <laughs> I was like, I was, my eyes were rolling out of my head at whatever I'm sure dude uh, wrote this piece. I didn't look at the byline. If you're listening right now, sorry, but your article was mad patronizing. One of the things that the, that the author of this piece wrote about was you describing picking out JCPenney clothes for that character. And like the premise of him describing this was like, well, I'm sure she's only shopped at Giorgio Beverly Hills or whatever. So it's like, 
it's like looking down her nose that she's never been in a JC Penny before. And I was as I was reading this article, I was like, geez, I don't know. <laughs> like Wow. Maybe she's Giorgio a, Beverly Hills. I don't know if it was Giorgio I Beverly Hills. But so that here's might be my a question. 1988 thing here's instead of a question. 1982 thing, but here's my question. Yeah. You know me 20 minutes. Yes. Half hour. Do I look like the type of girl who shops on Rodeo Drive? I mean, you look very chic. I'm wearing anatomy pants and shirt, and I think these are made. Hold, please. (laughs) I believe (laughs) these are made by Sorel, like the boot company. Sure. I'm wearing sandals made by Sorel, and I'm wearing anatomy travel clothes, which is a company that I think are geniuses because everything you can wash and there's no wrinkles. And it, it, you know, I find people's opinion or thought about how I grew up or how, whatever I grew up honestly. And then I become defensive about it. And then it makes me look like I'm defending something. So I understand I've had great privilege in my life. I, there's no question that I've had privilege the truth is I grew up on a dirt road with a donkey outside a stable, and I know this because out of the blue through someone else, I got a letter from my childhood neighbor, the Cavalieri brothers, from Joey Cavalieri, who lived down the street. I don't know how, I don't remember who was the person who put us in contact, but they gave me a letter from Joey Cavalieri with a picture of the donkey Jenny. And that was my childhood. I grew up with scabs on my knees. I mean, I was a little tomboy girl drive on a dirt road with a donkey. So I was not a fancy girl. That was the thing that struck me about this article, which was like, it was not for Halloween. It was for uh, a movie that you did a few years later, but, uh, you know, pre A Fish Called Wanda, post-Halloween. And Probably perfect. It, it may very well have been perfect, which featured a lot of you in aerobics class. Yes. What struck me about this piece that I was reading was like it was simultaneously accusatory at you about like being Hollywood royalty or whatever, and also the same tone about you <laughs> being defensive about being accused. I mean, it's just... It was like, it, and then there was also just like a glib reference to like you getting felt up at a club. And I was like, gee whiz, what a castle to go deal with publicly when you're 23. Uh, honestly, I could give <laughs> I am so beyond any need to try to prove myself in any way. I try to prove myself by deeds and actions. The opinion of other people does not matter to me. I I don't spend one second of my day worrying about what someone else thinks of me. And, you know, I I come in here and t- happy to talk to you, but it's I don't I don't come in with an agenda. You know, I feel like we're playing catch with each other. It doesn't matter. I complimented you on your clothing. We're talking about mine. It's it's just the way I am. Um, I have let go of any of that need because I'm going to die soon. <laughs> I mean, I'm old enough now to be like you read my name died. Honestly, at this moment, you just read I died. The first word be like, really? 
how, and then what, however I died. Oh, how old was she? 62. Oh, that's kind of young. Kind of, not really. Oh, I'm sad. I liked her. What are we having for dinner? And that's how fast it's going to be over. It doesn't matter. It's, it's, it's irrelevant. So for me to spend one more second on this earth focusing on what other people think rather than trying to focus on what I think and trying to bring that forward, that's the sort of 60, from 60 on will be that tilt for me in the work I do. Um, which is the motto simply, if not now, when, if not me, who? And that means on every level, spiritually, physically, romantically, creatively, in every area. Like what, like the creativity that dies with me is the tragedy of the death. A creative person who dies, the tragedy is the creativity that died with them. And I'm a creative person. So I'm trying to get it all out before I go. One of the things that I was thinking about as I was thinking about your career doing Halloween movies for now more than 40, over a time of more than 40 years, years, right? Was like, because the horror movie world is its own world, like it, this vibrant fandom um, its own set of people, its own set of making huge amounts of money without spending money on movies. Like there's all these really distinctive things about horror movies. If you are an actor and particularly an actress, the job that you had in horror movies um, early in your career, it is like both, it has both the qualities of like great work if you can get it, you know, it is self-perpetuating to some extent. Like it's a world in which you can make a name for yourself and keep a name for yourself. And because of the fandom, like those people want to support you because they have this relationship to the genre that people don't necessarily have to, um, to you know, action comedies or something. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also like a job that for people who have that job, it's not like the one they were shooting for, like not that like they wanted to be an actor, but like, I don't think most of those people are like, I'm going to become, I'm going to get into horror movies. You know what I mean? There are, I'm sure some actors in horror movies who are like, I'm going to get into horror movies, but mostly it's something you fall backwards into. I think you fall into everything. I know a few actors who are highly trained, who, have done every type of dramatic work in acting schools. They've been to universities. They've gotten degrees in it. They can do any accent in any field, and they have and continue to. Many of them can sing, and you know what I mean. They they do approach their career with an openness, but with an eye on a very specific choices, making choices based on work. For me, being fall, I literally, the last thing I thought I'd be as an actor, I was at college, I came home at Christmas, uh, a man who used to be a tennis teacher at a friend of mine's house named Chuck Binder, who I saw that Christmas over the holiday, said to me, hey, I'm managing actresses now, and they're looking for Nancy Drew at Universal. I should put you up for it. And I said, Okay. 
Chuck. And I went to an audition for Nancy Drew. I didn't get the part, but something happened because Chuck was like, you know, they really liked you. You should stick around, which is why I stuck around that month in Los Angeles taking acting classes. And blah, blah. But I had fully intended on going back to the last thing I'd thought I'd be is really a professional actor. And right at the end, I auditioned for what they called the contract system, the contract program at Universal, which was the old school uh, movie star contract system where they paid actors a weekly amount and put them into projects. And they still had that program. This was like the very end of the line. It was right at the end. And uh, it was run by a woman named Monique James and a woman in New York named Dorothy Kilgallen. I auditioned. I did a scene from a play, Butterflies Are Free, that Goldie Hawn did the movie of, that was written, the play was written by an old friend of my mother's, Leonard Gersh. And I loved the play. And so I did a scene from it. When I finished, I'm 19, oh, I'm 18, 19, 18. I don't even remember. And I said to Monique James, I said, she said, I finished. She said, thank you very much. I said, listen, just so you know, I'm going back to college in two days. So I'm going to need to know if this is going to work out or not because I'm going back to college. And, um, and they called me and I was given a contract at Universal and I quit college. So the last thing I thought I'd be as an actor, and now all of a sudden I found I was one. You're one of my favorite comic actors. and um, Did you just say I am? Yes, very much so. Yeah, you're great. You're the best. Um, oh, now. Yeah, you're super oh, funny. Okay. You're super funny. Thank you. Um, you're and, nice boy. Uh, <laughs> I drink some water now. I'm 40 years old, ma'am. Um, you're one of my favorite. So am I, by the way. <laughs> just so you know, what I really would like to do is spend my entire life talking like this. Like, I really just, like, I really feel like this is really the, like, the person that I really want to be is really about this age. Like, four or five, kind of. <laughs> anyway, what I was going to say is you're one of my favorite comic That's actors. That's very sweet of you. And, um, you know, you were a little bit into your career before you started doing comedy. Duh. <laughs> uh, you know, you're tr- trading places in A Fish Called Wanda both happened, you know, uh, nearly a decade into your career. A Fish Called Wanda a little more than that. And uh, I wonder if when you started doing that, you felt like you were good at that. Like you felt like this is something I want to do because this is the thing that I'm good at. No. The reason that I was able to start it is that John Landis made a short film called Coming Soon, which was a short documentary about horror film trailers from the 50s all of those really exaggerated trailers. And he needed somebody to narrate it. So he called the girl who was in horror films. And I remember getting a call from my agent and they said, John Landis would like you to do the thing. And I was like, oh, okay. But clearly in the time of meeting him and I had to do some wardrobe for it. And then we shot for three or four days on the back lot at Universal, obviously in between the sort of boring narration that I did for them, I must have cracked wise or been 
again, who I am. Effusive. Effusive and, and, and myself. And so I think I know that that had an impression on him because he is the sole reason that I'm in the movie Trading Places. I'm not in the movie Trading Places because Paramount wanted me to be in the movie Trading Places. If you remember, if you've seen the movie recently, there are very few women. And this is the largest role in the movie. And obviously, you have big stars, Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd, along with Ralph Bellamy, Donna Michi, Denim Elliott. And obviously, there were many other women who Paramount uh, would have liked to have heard was going to be cast as Ophelia and John Landis. I auditioned for Ophelia, and I had fallen at work. I'd made a film called My Love Letters, which was a very indie drama. Um, and I had fallen at work uh, and gotten injured. And I'd had to go into the hospital to make sure I hadn't broken my thing. And so the, my audition was the next morning for Trading Places. I even think I had, like, bandages on me. And, you know, I don't think I gave a good audition. I know I didn't give a good audition. And I guarantee you, people were like, oh, yeah, well, she was bad. So now let's go with whoever it was. And he gave me that part. And that really began then, of course, for me. Even though it's a pretty straight part, it, it, it allowed, obviously, John Cleese to see that movie and then call me and say, I'm going to write a part for you in a movie and blah, blah, blah. And and now I get to do that a little bit. There's a couple of things that I don't want to miss out on asking you about. One of them is that you lived uh, when you were in your mid to late 20s in an apartment building. Oh, my God. <laughs> where you you were, uh, I don't know what they call it, the, the head of the tenants board. Or I was the, the president of the homeowners association. <laughs> That's what I was. I was the president. I was 26 years old and I was the president. <laughs> what? This is like a famous Hollywood building. It's called the Colonial House. It's in West Hollywood on Havenhurst. It is a registered historic building beautiful apartment building. People refer to it as sort of Dakota West. And it's filled with artists, directors, actors, um, models. The photo editor of Playboy, a woman named Marilyn Grabowski, lived there. She used to do photo shoots out on the patio with these playmates. Um, Many actors. uh, Carol Kane lived there. Uh, Robert Ellis Miller lived there. Many, many people and Betty Davis, <laughs> who lived upstairs. <laughs> so, like, how do you, like, tell Betty Davis she, like, can't paint her door that color? Or no, whatever? it was turning on the heat. So I was the uh, president of the board of trustees, and it was uh, a call I got from her in July, in a hot July. It was probably, it was maybe, it was July. And... The phone rang. I picked it up. Hello. I want the heat. I'm sorry, Miss Davis? (laughs) I'm sorry, who's calling? (laughs) I want the heat. You want me to turn on the heat? Yes. I'm very cold. Miss Davis, 
It's July. I can't turn on the furnaces in July. I just can't. I'm going to suggest you buy some portable heater. Like she wanted me to turn on the furnaces because she was chilled. <laughs> Betty Davis, who, by the way, um, my husband worked with in a movie uh, with Marlo Thomas, and she would lay by the pool in her black one-piece bathing suit with a big black hat. She was fantastic. And I worked with her in a TV movie called As Summers Die for HBO, I think, at the time. And um, I have to tell you this very quick story because this is this is unbelievable. So it was set in the 50s, land rights, uh, a white landowner dies and leaves his land to his African-American woman um, and his white sisters, uh, one of them, tries to fight the the will. And Betty Davis played the good sister who was going to testify at the trial. And I played her sort of, you know, snappy Southern uh, uh, niece named Witsy Lawton. And um, the the day was I had to wheel her in her Victorian wheelchair, you know, into the courtroom, down the center to where she was going to give testimony clearly that the intention that the dead guy did was correct. And she was going to go against her sister, played by Penny Fuller, wonderful actress. So we go to do the scene. They say, OK, go. I'm walking her down the thing. I turn to go down the center aisle. Beautiful old mahogany, southern, you know, hot uh, courtroom scene. And all of a sudden, this claw hand of hers comes up to the shoulder where my hand, my hand was on the, the things, and she grabbed my arm. She goes, take me back. Now, we're shooting. People are looking, and I go, I'm sorry, what, Miss Davis? Take me back. And I turn the thing. People are looking at me like, what the f*** are you doing? And I'm like, I don't know what's going on. I'm going to take her back. I now take her back. She goes, get the producers. Producers come running in. They're like, what the f***? I'm like, I don't know. So you go in. Closed door. 20 minutes. Door opens. The director walks out, walks down the center aisle, walks up to Penny Fuller, sitting on the aisle in the front row. He whispers in her ear, and I hear her say, oh, give me a break. Are you kidding? And he said, no, I'm sorry. And all of a sudden, the wardrobe women are running in with hats in their hands. And she picks a hat. She takes off the red hat that she was wearing. And she puts on some other hat. They score thing. We go back. And as I'm getting ready to go back out now to reshoot the scene, Miss Davis looks at me and says, she should have known better. It's my scene. <laughs> and she was worried that a red hat would draw your attention away from Betty Davis on this. That If you cut back, your eye would go to Penny Fuller's red hat. Betty Davis. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you, Betty Davis. Big, big lesson. And by the way, all you Instagrammers, I'm sure you all know, wear a red b 
baseball hat in a picture. It looks amazing. So you get the point. True story. We'll wrap up with Jamie Lee Curtis after the break. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Odoo. Running a company is hard, but over 6 million people found a way to make it easier, thanks to Odoo. Odoo is a suite of business applications designed to streamline, automate, and simplify any company. Odoo has apps for CRM, accounting, e-commerce, manufacturing, inventory management. You name it, Odoo's got it. Each app is user-friendly, intuitive, and fully integrated. For a free trial of Odoo, go to odoo.com bullseye. Welcome back to the Bullseye Halloween Spooktacular. I'm Jesse Thorne. Our guest is the one and only Jamie Lee Curtis. She's reprising her iconic role as Laurie Strode from the Halloween series in her latest film, Halloween Kills. It's playing right now. Let's get back into our conversation. So another thing I wanted to ask you about is um, one of your daughters, right? Both your kids are daughters, right? Yes. Uh, one of your daughters is transgender, mm-hmm. and you know this is something I don't I don't know how long she's been out about it, but it's something that you've talked about publicly for not all that long. Not a not a long time at all. I wonder. Uh, like I'm a much less notable public figure than you, but when my kid who's transgender came out to my wife and I. One of the things we realized was like, oh, we've talked about her by the gender that she was assigned at birth for her entire life. And if we just switch, it's going to be super weird. So we kind of have to acknowledge that she's trans, right? Like there is no way around it. People would be like, the math isn't adding up on this anymore. I wonder how you and your daughter talked about how public she wanted to be and uh, she wanted you and your husband to be about her being trans. So, you know, it's her story to tell, not mine. Um, Ruby posted this on Facebook. I mean, she spoke to us first, obviously, but, but she posted it on Facebook. And so it's been public knowledge because it's a public, you know what I mean? Right. And so when I was doing a magazine article, a sort of big profile about my entire life, my philanthropy, my family life, my work life, I asked Ruby, I said, do you want me to mention this? Or if I mention this, are you comfortable with that? What do you, and Ruby was like, yes, because it isn't a secret. It's the opposite of a secret. It's being alive, maybe for the first time in her life. And as you said, all of the years of talking about her in the way we used to has changed. And it's her story to tell. And I asked if she wanted me to share it. She said yes. It resulted in, uh, you know, it's buried in an article, which I really credit Uh, the AARP um, editing team, because I'm sure they could have made that a big pull quote. They didn't. And yet it became public knowledge. 
And I think that's sort of what she wanted was to be able to not be hiding anymore. I don't think she will necessarily take this further publicly. It's her life, her decision. Um, And it is my job as her mother to support her. Um, She's going to get married. I'm going to officiate the wedding. Um, She is happier than she's ever been in her life. And, you know, as a parent, I'm sure you know, that's what you want is to be able to help your child feel as in their body and skin as they can. And that's my job for both of my children. And my husband and I are in support of her in whatever it requires. Every once in a while, I get a note from another parent that says, um, or just somebody who's in the life of a gender nonconforming kid who says like, oh, I heard about you talking about it and different stuff. And like, I just was like into your comedy or whatever. And um, I heard you talk about it. And then it kind of creeped in, crept into my life. And I had the context to um, figure out the stuff I needed to figure out to be supportive of this kid. And um, like every every time that happens and I think of like, you know, I needed support to figure out how to support my kid, you know. Um, I'm just stunned that, you know, my family could have helped someone else's family. You know what I mean? But also because there are a lot of families that reject people. And rejection, rejection, it's just such a cruel feeling to be rejected. Um, And acceptance is love. It just goes back to love. It's just love. Well, Jamie Lee Curtis, I took all this uh, time of yours. I'm I'm sure grateful that you came in and uh, it was really great to get to talk to you. I'm really happy to be in this safe. It's really a very sacred space you've created here. Well, thank you, Jamie Lee Curtis. I appreciate that. Thank you. God bless you, everybody. Stay safe. Jamie Lee Curtis, folks. She's the best. Her new movie, Halloween Kills, is playing in theaters right now. It's also streaming on Peacock. I'll tell you this. When Jamie Lee Curtis found out that I had kids, she got a pen and a piece of paper, wrote down their names and ages, and then sent me a box in the mail at my house of her children's books and for my oldest, (laughs) a murderous Jamie Lee Curtis doll. (laughs) The children's books are wonderful. And the doll is terrifying, and Jamie Lee Curtis is all class. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Time now for a segment we call the craziest day of my entire career. Stepping up to the plate, Cassandra Peterson, also known as Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. Peterson has played Elvira for almost 40 years. Nobody does Halloween better than she does. She's hosted TV shows, done live shows, even had her own movie. And now Peterson is telling her own story. In Yours Cruelly, Elvira, Peterson recounts her remarkable and at times harrowing life. Near-death experiences, childhood trauma, totally bonkers parties in the 80s. And... When we asked her for the craziest day in her entire career, the question was, where do you even begin? For Cassandra Peterson, you begin at the beginning. 
the day she tried out for the gig that changed her life. Here's Cassandra. Craziest day of my entire career. Well, you've seen me, right, as Elvira. Okay, then you know that there's got to be a lot of crazy days in my career. All right, there are a million. Um, I had to pick one that I could talk about longer than 30 seconds, but it was a pretty crazy day, and it was maybe the most important day. And that is the day that I got to be Elvira, that I got the part. Who's there? Is that you? <laughs> come in, darling. I've been expecting you. Oh, come in. Don't be afraid. <laughs> I won't bite. And you're bound to have a good time. Or my name isn't Elvira. I remember specifically where I was. I was on my honeymoon in 1981. I was in Aspen, Colorado, in kind of a low-end motel, the best one we could get there on our budget. And the day after my wedding, I woke up and I got a phone call from one of my best friends in L.A. Her name was Donna Kaufman, and she said, Cassandra, you have got to get back here right away. There's this guy I know. He's got a local TV show here in L.A. on uh, KHJ, and he's looking for somebody to host horror movies. Their last uh, uh, horror host died, Sinister Seymour, and now they're looking to replace him. And I'm like, you know, I just got married last night, and I'm on my honeymoon, and... uh, I am not flying back to L.A. for any part. End of story. And she's like, no, 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 you have to because he's, this is perfect for you. He's, he, he's looking for somebody who's really sexy but can be funny too. And, and he can't find anybody and they've been looking for months. And I said, no, no, I'm not coming back. Because there's this thing in show business, whenever you leave town, that is when you're going to get the audition of a lifetime. You know, it always happens that way. And then you fly back, interrupt your trip, and you don't get the part. So I said no. A couple weeks pass, I go back to LA. I have a million messages on my phone machine and it's Donna and she says, they're still looking, they haven't been able to find anybody. Call them right away. So I call this guy, Larry Thomas, and uh, he says, hey, I've, I've seen you in the Groundlings. I think you would be perfect for this. I had been in the Groundlings for four and a half years, a comedy improv group. And uh, why don't you come in and read? Could you come in tomorrow? Because we got to find somebody by tomorrow. It's our deadline. And I'm like, sure, okay. Well, I'll go in. So I was pretty thrilled they were still looking. I wasn't quite prepared. I didn't have the sides to study. I hadn't been able to look it over. I hadn't been able to memorize it. Nothing. So I was going in, obviously, a little cold. I remember what the room was like exactly. It was 8 by 10, 8 by 12. There was no furniture in it except this makeup chair in the middle. It was the morning news team's makeup room. And there was this very old, nice man who was the makeup artist who was kind of hanging around in there making sure we didn't steal anything, I guess. And uh, this chair in the center that looked kind of like what you sit in at the dentist's office. And then they had lined three or four folding metal chairs up against the wall were all these uh, very buxom uh, vixens there were sitting in all their black leotards and all of that. I mean, there was way too many people packed in there. 
and it was, I was sweating. I was just, remember sweat running down the sides of my little turquoise dress. They gave me the sides when I came walking into the front of KHJ. They had a reception area, and the receptionist kind of just stuffed them in my hand and said, down the hall to the right. And uh, I went clomping down the hall until I turned right into that makeup room and almost had a heart attack. And I walk into this little makeup room, dressing room, that is packed with seven or eight other gals in there. And I was a little bit in shock because all of them had long black hair, you know, share wigs with gray streaks in them, tight black cat suits, uh, fangs. One girl had permanently affixed fangs. It was... And I was wearing like a little turquoise dress in the summer, my white sandals and my fair faucet hairdo with my red hair. And um, I really thought that I was in the wrong place. All the other girls were ready to go. They went in one by one. I sat down and looked at the script. And the script was really, really dorky. I believe it was an old, old vampire script from the 50s. And it was all along the lines of... Come in, darling, drink a glass of blood. So I thought, this isn't funny. And he wanted me to be funny. So I started messing around with it, writing down a few jokes, improvising, thinking of whatever I could think of that would be funny and horror-related. So I changed the script around. I was just thinking of everything I could think because they told me there were old bad movies. And I wrote down anything funny I could think about. I remember one thing was like, uh, this movie is so bad that I would walk out on it even if it was on a plane. Everybody in there laughed. It was, you know, the station manager, the director, and uh, quickly grabbed my sides and walked out the door, and the director came running up after me, slapped a hand on my shoulder and said, you got the part. I was in shock. I, I just, I couldn't believe it. Just because I'd come there, obviously so unprepared, I didn't think I would. I was going to be called Vampira when Five minutes before we were ready to shoot, I'm out there standing in my little cobweb-lined hallway, uh, beckoning people into the show. And uh, the station manager came flying in the door and said, stop the show, stop the show. We can't use the name Vampira. Her lawyer just called and she owns it. I thought, oh great, it's not happening. Uh, my fantastic gig where I can actually pay my rent is going to be over, and that's the end of that. Then Larry Thomas, the director, ran up and said, just pick another name, pick another name, quick, and we'll just keep going. So we're all standing around, well, what can we call it? What, you know, what should I be called? And he said, everybody here in the set, write down your, your name that you think she should be called on a piece of paper, and we're going to throw it in this Bulger's coffee can, and then Cassandra, you pick the name, and we'll just go with that. I'm like, okay, whatever. I draw the name Elvira. And uh, Larry gave me the title of Mistress of the Dark. I have no idea what that means, but it worked. And uh, we went with the show. Once I got the part, they said, okay, now you need to come up with a look. Obviously, you can't look like that. You need to look spooky. And so I immediately called my best friend, a guy named Robert Redding, who I had been in a comedy group with. And um, he was an artist. And he and I sat down and said, oh, my God, what can I look like? What, you know, needs to be spooky and sexy. And, 
and basically did a Morticia Adams, and uh, he did the hair, which he modeled after his favorite, favorite singing artist, Ronnie Spector. He did the makeup based on a character that he had just played. Uh, he'd played Hecate, the witch from Othello, and we put on the wig, he cut it, did the makeup, bought and sewed the dress himself. I mean, he was just so talented. And um, we put it on, and I went in there, and oh, lordy. The first time I put that outfit on, I looked at myself in the mirror and thought, Baba boom. <laughs> I really was. I was like, damn, this is... Awesome. And when I walked on that stage for the first time that day, I didn't quite have to look down. I had on flesh-colored stockings, and I had little peep-toe shoes on, and I didn't have a belt yet. Uh, but when I walked on that stage, I, there was kind of a gasp and then silence. I don't think the crew knew what they were getting. I just stood there for a minute while everybody was frozen in place, and I was thinking... Is it too much? <laughs> I really didn't think I was going to be there that long. Uh, the show was very, very, very low budget, really cheesy. The station had one studio, and the news at noon and the news at five had to shoot in that studio. So we had between one and five to do the show. Uh, it was really slapped together and really rushed. And... Uh, I really didn't know, you know how long the whole thing was going to last. And at home, I was listed in the phone book, which was really brilliant. Uh, but back then, you know, everybody was listed in the phone book. So I'm in the phone book, Cassandra Peterson, and I start getting calls from everybody. People wanted me to do their birthday parties, their Halloween party, their beauty salon shop opening, their grocery store opening. And I, I just couldn't believe it. My husband and I were like, this can't be happening. And uh, also calls from a lot of pervs, too. I might throw that in there. Um, we quickly took our my name out of the phone book and uh, changed our number. And the show continued going. And in a, a few weeks after that, I was invited to come on The Tonight Show. Do you ever show... You, you don't only show horror movies, though, right? Oh, well, I don't know if you'd call them all horror movies, but uh, most of them are pretty... Frightening, in any case. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you like that macabre, right? You've always enjoyed that... Uh... Oh, yeah, I always really into this stuff. You know, I, I have some great pictures on my show, like Jesse James meets the daughter of Frankenstein. Kind of a romantic picture, boy meets school. I've <laughs> <laughs> seen that. A couple of pictures like that. Um, what would you say is your favorite movie that you should? Well, I have to say I really love Plan 9 from Outer Space. A real classic movie. <laughs> Yeah, like, there are fans, imagine that. Oh, yes, all those fans. I mean, the, the producer of that movie should have stuck to plan one and made a musical. <laughs> you kind of knew that if you were going on that show, you were famous. So I went on the show, the show continued to go, and here I am today, 40 years later, this year. The fact that you can make a living doing this is pretty crazy. People have asked me a million times, would you ever imagine you would be doing this for the you know, rest of your life? And I always say, no, no, absolutely not. It's not what I dreamed of being. It's not what I thought would happen. Um, I mean, I'm thrilled that it turned out that way, but 
I certainly didn't see myself back then doing this, but I am going to be doing that for the rest of my life. Cassandra Peterson on the craziest day of her entire career, the time she became Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. Peterson's new book is called Yours Cruelly, Elvira. And if you've ever wondered if there are a thousand fascinating stories behind the person who created that iconic character, the answer is yes. Cassandra Peterson is one of the smartest, funniest, most fascinating guests we've ever had on this show. And the book is full of a million ways she became that way. So uh, do check it out. Even more of the Bullseye Halloween Spectacular still to come. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Hey there, I'm Ellen Weatherford. And I'm Christian Weatherford. And we've got big feelings about animals that we just got to share. On Just the Zoo of Us, your new favorite animal review podcast, we're here to critically evaluate how each animal excels and how it doesn't, rating them out of 10 on their effectiveness, ingenuity, and aesthetics. Guest experts give you their takes informed by actual, real-life experiences studying and working with very cool animals like sharks, cheetahs, and sea turtles. It's a field trip to the zoo for your ears. So if you or your kids have ever wondered if a pigeon can count, why sloths move so slow, or how a spider sees the world, find out with us every Wednesday on Just the Zoo of Us, which can now be found in its natural habitat on MaximumFun.org. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Next up on the Bullseye Halloween Spectacular, Harvey Guillen. Harvey stars on one of my favorite TV shows, What We Do in the Shadows. Definitely my favorite vampire comedy of all time. What We Do in the Shadows, in case you haven't seen it, follows four vampires. They all live in a big spooky house in Staten Island. They drink blood and turn into bats. And, I mean, they're kind of dummies? Not stupid per se, so much as just a combination of regular and very, very, very ancient. So they don't know how the modern world works. They don't really care. And they depend completely on the help of a familiar, Guillermo. Guillermo is played by my guest, Harvey Guillen. He's a human servant. But to the four vampires on the show, he's also tech support, bodyguard, virgin blood provider. And the idea is that in exchange for all that hard work, one day, Guillermo will be turned into a vampire. What we do in the shadows is well into its third season. I don't think it spoils things to say that they have not yet turned Guillermo into a vampire. And the odds are they may never. Harvey Guillen is great in the role, funny, vulnerable, sweet, and once in a while deadly, like in this clip from the beginning of the latest season. At the end of season two, Guillermo murders a bunch of vampires, almost all of the vampires in the tri-state area, in fact. He does it because they wanted to kill the vampires that Guillermo lives with. So, what do those vampires do? 
the ones who've been saved? Well, they lock Guillermo in a cage in the basement. Okay, so day 30 of imprisonment. Not bad, actually. I get pretty good Wi-Fi down here, so I've been able to rewatch some of my favorites. Did another round of Gilmore Girls. <laughs> I can show you around if you want, give you a tour. Here, this is my bed. There's my mini fridge. And there's the chicken they think I eat raw. And some yoo-hoos. And that is where I, um, yeah. Without me, the vampires don't know what they're doing. Like literally, they can't do anything without me. They can't even imprison someone. <laughs> Harvey, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. <laughs> I remembered about the raw chickens, but I forgot about the yoo-hoos. <laughs> <laughs> we have to bring them back. He loves yoo-hoos. Remember season one. <laughs> well, welcome to the show. I'm such a uh, I'm such a fan of the show and such a fan of your work on the show. You're originally from Orange County, uh, south of Los Angeles. Orange County basically has a couple of reputations. One is the reputation it received from uh, being the subject of some MTV reality shows. Yes. <laughs> One is a kind of reputation that is a sort of vague extension of Los Angeles. I can't imagine that either of those are a super accurate representation of what it was for you when you were a kid. So what was it like for you when you were a kid in, in Santa Ana, where you grew up? Um, yeah, when I say I was born in Orange County and had uh, a childhood there, people were always like, oh, yeah, like Laguna. I was like, no, that was the nice side. <laughs> like, that was the other side of the tracks. I lived in Santa Ana and kind of a like, dodgy neighborhood, uh, but that's what we could afford. And um, so that's where I first realized that I wanted to be an actor. I was watching TV and I thought I was watching a brand new show on the air. Uh, I was over Christmas break and it was Annie, the musical, the movie from the 80s. And I thought it was the coolest thing. I was like, these kids are singing and dancing and they're poor and they get to do it all. And I remember I uh, I asked my mom, uh, I wanted to do that. Or I didn't ask her, I told her I wanted to do that, that I wanted to be an orphan. And she looked at me weird. <laughs> I was like, I want to be an actor. That's what I was. So that's how I fell in love with acting was um, when we lived in Santa Ana. So had you already decided by the time that you were a teenager that this was actually not just an imaginary thing, but a thing worth in real life trying to do? I felt like comedy's hard. And I always found that I could make people laugh easily. I, it was just second nature to me. I could, you know, say something that was just said and I just repeated it, but I just put my own twist on it and it makes someone's laugh or make someone laugh or make their day. In college, I had a professor who said, you could probably read a dictionary and make people laugh uh, because I'm an entertainer. At the end of the day, I've always been an entertainer since I was little and I like what I do. I had this gut feeling that I'd be good at it. Did you have a scheme? Did you have a plan? I knew that I wanted to perform, but I didn't know how to do it, obviously. So my theory was that I needed to get trained in musical theater because it covers dance, acting, singing, all of that. It's a good, I think that's a good teenage plan. Like the teenage plan is like, okay, first I have to learn fencing, horseback riding, singing, <laughs> dancing, <laughs> wig making, stage makeup. <laughs> all of it, all of the above. Um 
you should be able to do a lot, I think. And you again, you're like cutting yourself short if you're just like, oh, I'm just a singer, which is great, I'm just a singer. But look how many people like were singers and crossover or vice versa, were actors and crossover, like J-Lo, you know, she was a dancer turned actress turned singer turned international everything, you know? So you knew you were going to be a J-Lo type figure, <laughs> but you had to come up with... Yeah, that was my whole goal. How to get there. I was one, yeah. I'm just waiting for the remake of the film Selena, and I think we should do a gender bender, and I know where you... You know what? You know? I mean, you just sold that in the room. Sold. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm just waiting for the call, you know. Um, but I knew that I wanted to be able to do everything. So I went to school for musical theater and we weren't supposed to audition for musical theater stuff while we were in school because you weren't prepared. You weren't ready. They didn't want to throw you out there if you're not fully baked. And I did. And I broke the rules and I auditioned and I got this job in Japan in Osaka to do a musical for 13 months. And I was still in school. And I went to the dean and the dean was like, you're not ready. Just turn it down. And I was like, isn't the whole goal for us to go and find work? I can work right now. They're like, this is your freshman year. Like you can't and I was like, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. And I left school and I did the contract and moved to Japan. And Wait, what, did, what was it that you had auditioned for in Japan? I auditioned for Wicked, the musical, which uh, Universal Studios has the rights to. And they, this was all through like their theme park in Japan. So they do like musicals in the theme park. So they have a venue for Wicked in the Wizard of Oz world. And they have Blues Brothers in the New York's back lot. Is this a full production of Wicked? Of Wicked, yeah. Like there's a whole amphitheater um, that has the same costumes, the same scenery. They 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 crack it down to like a way smaller version for a theme park, but they do pretty much all the major songs. Like they keep the fluff, if you will, out of it. And they're just like straight to the major songs, storyline the same, and you wrap it up. I was hired to do Blues Brothers to play Jake in the Blues Brothers to play John Belushi's role and had to learn all like the jazz music and all that. And I was a swing to um, the wizard in Wicked because since I'm round, short, round and stout, they just put a white wig on you and they put wrinkles on you. <laughs> and then the stage are like, yeah, that guy's definitely 68, right? <laughs> Mind you, I just had left school, but it was super fun. But to this day, I can only hear the wizard, the Wicked songs in Japanese in my head. And so if I hear the Wizard song come out, like within seconds, like I just go into autopilot. Like if you hear the beginning chords, you just go, I'm a sentiment man. So I'm like, all of that is just a Japanese uh, Wizard song. And, um, but it really kind of threw me into it because I had to learn a lot of stuff on the spot like that. Like I didn't know it was going to be in Japanese when I got there. So I got the script and I was like, oh, mine's in Japanese. I think I got the wrong script. They're like, no, the songs are going to be Japanese. This is Japanese country. Like you're going to talk in Japanese. You're going to sing in Japanese. And I was like, oh, I thought that would make sense. Okay. So I had to learn Japanese in like two weeks. I think the reason that I was so fascinated with this first big job that you have in J that you had in Japan you know, you had already had a life of that was heavy on translation because, you know, you are Mexican-American and living in a 
you know, living between Mexican-American and not Mexican-American worlds in Southern California. You are queer, and anytime you're queer almost anywhere, you're having to deal with a situation where you're in the minority. And you are also in this, like, very particular community of actors and especially musical theater actors. Like, that is a very specific world. But then you also have this profound difference, which is you are in a different country with people who speak a different language. That is layers upon layers of difference between everybody. And I can hardly wrap my head around like where everyone meets together and what it ends up being. And and there's a part of me that wonders like, is that honestly just freeing? Because you're like, well, we're all in the show together. Yeah, I I think it's just the best job uh, I've ever had just because just Hollywood in general, just putting all these strikes against you. Um, all the things that I was told were, were my strikes were like, no, you can't be queer and you can't be, you know, um, brown and proud or brown, round and proud as I call myself. Like, you can't do that. And it's just like, why not? And it's like for so long, people are just like scared to like, um, give a role to someone who may be openly queer because it's like we won't believe it. It's like you believe that person's a real serial killer when they play a killer. <laughs> Do you really think they're a killer? Like, is that what you think? It's like, well, I believe it because, you know, they're straight and they can play a serial killer. And it's like, that's where the problem is like the mentality that Hollywood has on who can portray what and whatnot. Um, and so I think that being on this show where the characters are all pretty pretty obviously queer like everyone um we talked about this that we're like the queer show without being the queer show because it doesn't become the topic of conversation it's how they live their lives the vampires and it's a normal dialogue and it's not a taboo and it's not the the storyline that um the queer storyline that's the demise of that character because in you know mainstream it's like um either you're the flamboyant you know best friend sassy hairdresser or they came out and now they're dead. You know, it's like one or the other. And it's like, or they're living full lives every day. And just like you, like you would live your normal life as a hetero person. And uh, this queer person is living just a bountiful, uh, equally uh, successful and happy life that you are. And they just happen to be queer. Um, and I think we do a really good job of that, that we don't ever focus on the fact that like, Naja uh, has been with women and all the guys have been with men, but men and women or like his lasso is like the most beautiful thing in the world is men, men, women, men, women, men, men, men and women, men. (laughs) (laughs) And the list goes on and on. Um, I think it does show through comedy that it's like, just relax, just like, you know, let people be who they want to be and, and, and make it uh, and normalize it, normalize whatever you choose to be. So this is the this is what I like about your character in in what we do in the shadows. Your character starts out as a kind of classic vampire nerd. He's a guy who's there because he wants to be a vampire. It's a person that we probably all knew in high school to some extent, or maybe me more because I went to arts high school. But like most high schools have at least one person who've read a lot of Anne Rice novels and would love to hang out with some vampires for the chance to maybe do some vampiring. He is our view into this world, uh, us as the audience's view into this world. 
And as the show has gone on, he has grown to the point where he is essentially the protagonist of the show. I wonder at the beginning, when you were watching this show, if you thought, well, this character is sweet, and he's just going to continue to be the guy who grimaces slightly uh, when vampires do something embarrassing because they don't know how humans work. Or if you had an idea that this was going to become something beyond that. No, I didn't have any idea. I, I mean, if you know, if you recall season one, Guillermo doesn't really talk a lot. He introduces the camera crew in the beginning, and he kind of becomes our eyes for the audience um, in the sense that when the vampires do or say something that's uh, ridiculous or or stupid or uh, mundane or something, it's just like you look over at the camera and it's like, do you watching this? It's like this instant rapport with the audience is with the only human in the room. And Guillermo can only connect to another human because he, you know, can't do that with the vampires. They, they have lived for, you know, centuries. They have nothing to lose and they're immortal. So that's why they're so easy to dismiss things because they're like, oh, I don't care. Like, oh, or they just care about pleasure, about feasting. Because what else are they going to do? It's like they're going to set goals for themselves. They have hundreds of years ahead of them. So uh, I love the ongoing joke of that because Guillermo is not that. Guillermo's clock is ticking. And he wants to be a vampire, but an age that he would be, you know, uh, immortal in this time in his life where he could still feel, you know, young and and energetic and youthful. And in season one, we see that, like... Um, he meets other familiars who have been a familiar to their masters for 80 years. And he's like, my, my vampire promised me to make me a familiar this. And it's like, Oh no. And he starts realizing they have no intention of ever making a vampire. Like he's literally slaving away for them and they're not keeping their end of the bargain. And the clock is ticking. Guillermo's getting older and it doesn't look like it's going to come to flourishing. And so he starts doing things differently and um, and maybe starting to think of a different avenue. And by doing so or starting to think of doing so, we find out that he's the descendant of Van Helsing, which is a big plot twist for the end of season one. And even the last name to Guillermo, I remember talking to Jermaine on set, like this is probably like episode two we're shooting and we're doing the interviews and the other name pops up in the bottom. And they're asking us to slate our name, like if you did for a documentary. I remember telling him, I feel weird if I don't have a last name. Can I give him a last name? And he goes, well, yeah, he should have a last name. What are you thinking? And I was just like, I don't know, something like Guillermo, Guillermo de la Cruz. And he goes, what does that mean? And I was like, oh, it means of the cross. Is that okay? Is that religion? And he's like, no, actually, that's perfect. And I was like, Okay, weird, but all right, because uh, they don't tell us a storyline. I didn't find out Guillermo was a Van Helsing descendant until the table read of the season one finale. And so, yeah, it's uh, it's kind of, uh, I didn't think it would even be what it is now. Like, um, people have really kind of uh, gravitated to Guillermo. Um, and I think it's because Guillermo uh, is kind of like all of us. You know, we've all been a Guillermo at one point or another, we've all been at a job that overlooks us for a promotion. We've all been maybe a little bit infatuated with someone that we don't have the courage to say anything from afar. We stay, you know, keep our distance. Um, we've all been in a toxic relationship that we just stay in it a little bit too long. 
we've all been in a place where we don't know how to voice to our family uh, how we feel, or there might be a big secret they need to reveal to them. We are all Guillermos at one point or another, and that's why everyone feels uh, instant rapport with him because we root for him because you're rooting for yourself. You want yourself to be happy and you want yourself to have a good life. So that's what makes us human. We have empathy for each other. So I think that's why everyone connects to Guillermo so well. Years ago on this show, I had a conversation with uh, my friend Dave Holmes, who has also hosted this show. And he wrote a book about his career, his his life and, and his career hosting on MTV, among other things. And he was closeted, he's gay and was closeted for a long time, well into his adulthood professionally. And one of the things that he talked about in his book was the way that um, passing as straight through his childhood um, and adolescence and college beyond um, led him to have a kind of hypersensitivity to the social needs of people around him to keep everyone around him comfortable and happy was a way to keep himself safe in his identity and sometimes physically as well. And that's something that, you know, I I don't think we have seen Guillermo have any direct romance on screen, but it's something that I see in Guillermo sometimes the way that his job is to take care of all these people around him is is a quality that at least for me resonates with that idea that like he's a guy who has to have that sensitivity because he's walking in a he's walking in delicate grounds and it may be skills that he has because because his his previous life or his outside life prepares him for it i would agree with that i think that he has to be good at that and also use it as a distraction because sometimes when you're left with your own thoughts for too long you have to be honest with yourself and i think if he if he has busy work you know if he is uh they can't do anything without me which is true and there's something to be said about being wanted and being needed everybody wants to be loved everybody wants to be needed and wanted and i think that if he can't have a romantic uh you know uh prospect like we were talking about then he can feel wanted and needed. And I think the vampires need him and he knows that. And sometimes they're complete a-holes to him um, and they're not nice. But at the end of the day, he loves them. He's committed to them. He is the chosen family that he has chosen for himself for the last decade. And, you know, at the end of season two, um, he moved out and he quit and that was not his job anymore. And he left the house and he comes back to get his stuff and he's told by the Naja doll that they all went to the theater. And the vampires are so intertwined into the world of trying to climb the social status ladder of the vampiric council world that they they overlook the clues that this is a trap. And Guillermo being human and leading with logic and his heart and empathy puts it together in seconds and is rushes himself, puts himself in danger and rushes himself to a theater full of vampires, destroys them all in their name and their honor and uh, to protect them. And the, the first thing out of, you know, once he destroys his whole theater full of vampires and he says, my name is Guillermo de la Cruz 
And the first thing out of their mouth is Nander saying, I don't give a what your name is. We have to do our own laundry. And that's where the humor is so great, where it's like he just killed a room full of vampires for you. And he's like, where's our laundry? <laughs> it's like, this is the world that he lives in. And this is the world that he's allowed to speak to him the way that they do. And But everyone has their limits. Well, Harvey, Javier, I'm very grateful to you for taking the time to be on the show. It was really nice to get to talk to you, and I've enjoyed your work on the show so much. Well, thanks for having me. Harvey Guillen. All three seasons of What We Do in the Shadows are streaming now on Hulu. It's a very funny show. If you'd like to hear more about it, I interviewed Matt Berry last year. He plays one of the vampires, Laszlo. We'll have a link to that on the Bullseye page at MaximumFun.org. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California, where I definitely live in the haunted house on my block. No question about it. But it's my first Halloween here, and I do not know if kids are going to come and ask for candy. So my plan right now is to buy about 25,000 Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, and if they don't come, I'll just have to deal with the consequences. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producer, Jesus Ambrosio. Production fellows at Maximum Fun are Richard Roby and Valerie Moffat. We get help from Casey O'Brien. Thanks to Sarah Melton for recording Harvey Guillen in Toronto. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is called Huddle Formation, recorded by the group The Go Team. Thanks to them and to their label, Memphis Industries, for sharing that music with us. You can also keep up with our show on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. We post our interviews in all those places. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.